And now it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning morning. and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're very glad you tuned into the show today. As we always say, we hope you can stay with us for the next hour. We'll be on till 10 o'clock Eastern time here on WPSL. Wherever you're listening on the web or whatever the case may be, you can always catch us live through several different means, not only to, by going to WPSL.com, but I think your Google and, uh, uh, what is it, not iRadio Now, i got it written down here somewhere, but several places you can catch us uh, on the web. You can also get recordings of the show, but we're glad you're with us today. And and we'll be taking your calls and comments, questions, whatever it might be here in a few moments. I'll give you the numbers for that if you'd like to join the show. We hope that you will. So there are a couple ways to join us today. We'll be talking about anything spiritual that's on your mind. We have a topic picked out and all that, but we'll be talking about whatever kind of uh, subject you want to talk about today. You'll get first uh, dibs on that. By the way, you can find us on TuneIn Radio, Google and Alexa. Uh, as well as the WPSL.com listen live button. If you go there, you can find us in a lot of different ways live on Sunday morning, and your friends all around the world or country can find us for that matter. I hope you'll tell them about that if you like them to listen to the show. But anyway, we have a couple, we have a topic or two that we've talked about to pick to talk about this morning. But if you want to change the subject, you're certainly welcome to do that. Let me give you the numbers. You can reach us live here at 772. 772- 340-1590-772-340-1590 is the number. That's the usual call-in number for WPSL. You can call us there, and you'll be patched right here through to us here at our church building through Skype. And uh, we appreciate Ray there at the station taking care of that for us. You can also reach us by text message. Some people like to text. You can text during the show live, and we'll try to respond if we can. You can text any other time during the week. There are two numbers. My name is Mike, and one of my number is 772 And Gary Jones is the other host. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing fine this morning, Mike. So we're, we share these duties, and his number is 772-260-6220. 772-260-6220. You can also reach us by email if you want to email. Some people do. Um, so it, that number, it, that email address is justchristians at att.net. Justchristians at att.net. So I think I missed an email or so last week, a couple weeks ago, but got that taken care of. And um, we'll probably get to that in a moment. But uh, somehow I overlooked it in my inbox, but sorry about that. That's usually what happens. So by the way, and I'll, I'll just tell you not about the email or a text or if you call in, uh, we are not in any way trying to dodge your comments or questions or not take them for some reason. They have no reason to do that. If we don't know the answer to something, uh, we'll be glad to say we don't know. But so we're not trying to dodge it. Just it's an oversight on our part on that matter. So I hope you'll uh, indulge us in that or be forgiving at least. So in any event, those are a couple of things that we want to get out of the way. Now, there are two things that I want to say about all this, Gary. They've got to relate to each other. We got an email 
in, on the 22nd of September from Laura saying, um, you know, do you know what have you ever heard of Simcat Torah? S-I-M-C-H-A-T Torah, T-O-R-A-H. The, it's pronounced Simcat, even though it looks like Simchat in English. It's a Hebrew word. And the truth be, I told her I, I don't I've n- I had not heard of that particular Jewish festival until recently. And then a few days later on that festival is when Hamas <laughs> attacked Israel. It was also the 50th anniversary of the war uh, in um, 1973. But in any event, uh, I looked it up. I told her I didn't know, but I looked it up. And, and what I found, it, it is not a Bible holiday, the Simchat Torah, but it is a Jewish festival started in the Middle Ages, a little bit later than that, to remember and celebrate the end of the readings of the law for the year, the Jewish New Year's coming up. And so they would have they had to have a celebration for a few days uh, about the Torah, which is the Torah or the five books of Moses, the law. That's their general word for the law of Moses. And they they keep they celebrate the end of the yearly readings in the synagogues with this festival. So they take that. I've been to a, a messianic synagogue where they have like it looks like a big chest. And uh, it's called a tabernacle, I think, and they or some Hebrew word for that and open the doors up and inside there are the scrolls of the law, usually a big scroll, very decorative and elaborate. They take that out and they dance around in circles with it and everybody dances and the thing because they're celebrating the law and they're giving the they're giving the law feet, as it were, to go out by doing that is the idea. It's all symbolic. And so they have this they have this. Uh, dancing festival uh, about reading the Torah during the year. And that's Simchat Torah. And apparently, and it's, it's like I say, it's not a Bible thing. We can't go to the Bible and look at which probably why I wasn't too familiar with it. But it is certainly something that the Jews hold in uh, high regard, as it were. And um, therefore, it was pretty disruptive to them to be attacked during that festival. And it's ironic that Laura asked me about this just before these things unfolded uh, the other day. Have you ever heard of it before, Gary? No, I've never heard of that that particular holiday or celebration, if you will. Um, I had was aware of the dates on which some of the wars started were related to Jewish holidays. Yes, they tend uh, to attack during those times. Uh, particularly the Yom Kippur War, but it, it seems that... Whereas Israel refers, doesn't doesn't usually attack during Ramadan. That would be considered by our press a horrible thing, but if Palestinians attack Israel on a Jewish holiday, yeah. well, that's to be expected. Yeah. That's kind of the way things work. But uh, in any event, that uh, you, can, you can see uh, pictures, as it were, and or if you ever have a chance to go to a synagogue, You'll see a, a chest or a cabinet sitting off, and sometimes it has wheels that roll it out, very elaborate decor. And that's where they keep the Torah, the scrolls of the Torah. And they would unroll this scroll period, periodically during the, each week in Sabbath service. They would unroll it and read portions of the law. You know, I just read something yesterday, Gary, in studying. I did not know. I'm ashamed to say I didn't know it. But, but uh, Mo- Moses commanded – 
that the law be read every seven years in front of the nation of Israel for the whole nation to hear when they were assembled together. The law, a whole law had to be read to them. I have to look up the verse. I just read it yesterday. I did not realize that there was a specific requirement for them to read, for the, them law. To read the whole law to all of Israel. And yet the fact is we have almost, except for the book of, of Nehemiah and Ezra, we have almost no record of that being done. Just like a lot of the rest of the law, we have no record in the Old Testament of that being done, per se, because the truth is it wasn't done. And just like the tabernacle was forgotten, the Ark of the Covenant was forgotten for hundreds of years, a couple hundred years, something like that at one point in time. They didn't even do that. So the idea that, well, people say in Bible class, well, what did the Jews do? Well, I'll tell you what the Jews did, as I've heard me say before. They did whatever they wanted to do. The question is not what did the Jews do. The question is they did the same thing that you do, whatever you want to do, which is usually not God's it's will true. oftentimes. They were what you can ask is what were they supposed to do? Now that's a different question than what did they do? And they were supposed to be reading this Torah all the time. The priests were supposed to be teaching the people from the Torah regularly. They were supposed to be offering up sacrifices for themselves and, and then the, the general congregational sacrifices on a regular basis. They're supposed to be keeping the Sabbath day. They were supposed to be keeping the Jubilee. They're supposed to be keeping uh, all the all the other laws that had to do with harvesting and dress and all that. The question is, did they? Well, most of the time they they didn't, which is why God cast them out of the land that they were living in. Not only did they not keep the law, but they adopted then the customs and religious customs of the people around about them, which they were forbidden to do. So anyway, that's Simchat Torah. You might look it up, and it's interesting reading. You can read a couple different nice articles on the web or otherwise from that, and, and that is one reason why probably religious Jews in Israel in particular were very upset about what happened because it was a desecration to them almost. Now then, which brings up another whole subject. Uh, I was going to talk about this this morning, Gary, in our in our or two things. We're going to talk about this one maybe later. There's an article by. Now I don't want to get off on this whole subject because I know Gary loves this subject. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to I don't want to get off on this because I want to go to the other specific part of this subject. If you if you if you're if you're okay with that, Gary. If you not, we'll go. Well, to there's you. only one thing that I have to say about that subject that I think. Everybody should understand. And that subject I'm sure you're talking about is premillennials. But there is an assumption about that subject of premillennialism and the earthly kingdom and all the things that go along with it. And Mike, there's about a thousand different versions of it. So yes, tying, hard to know. You tying it down to one. Right. Exactly. Almost all of them make the assumption that Jesus came to set up an earthly kingdom. And he was stopped by the Jews. They refused it. And therefore, God could not accomplish what he originally set out for Jesus to do. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's just an absurd assumption to me. That God should not be able to accomplish the things that he set out to do. And if we look closely in the Old Testament uh, prophets, we're going to see references to just exactly what happened. Right. Uh, uh, and, and, that, and it's a difference in Bible interpretation. There's a difference between 
literal and literalistic interpretation. And then there's a, a literal interpretation would mean that you take it as it is written. So if it's a concrete subject about history, you take it as history and you interpret it that way. If it is a apocalyptic or figurative story or or account, then you literally interpret it the way it was written, which would mean that you would not take it literally, but metaphorically or in a concrete way. Literalistic interpretation takes everything to be concrete and, and uh, not figurative at all. And I think that's what premillennialism does. It takes everything and interprets it in a concrete way. Plus, there's just some errors in it. And we'll come back to that. But the, the headline was Greg Laurie. You probably don't know about Greg Laurie. Greg no, Laurie. actually, I watch him on uh, Sunday morning. Okay. He's a, a, a mega church evangelical type preacher, fairly popular. Doesn't uh, he's sometimes controversial? I don't know a lot about yeah, it. You I, may even know more about it than me. I wrote you an email note about him. I don't, you, you, don't thought, you think overall he does a pretty good job? Is that what you said? Well, there are certain subjects that he does a pretty good job on. I've heard him teach very good scriptural sermons on things like loving your neighbor. Okay, I don't disagree with what but he said. But how to be saved? But when it comes to how to be saved, he goes off off the deep end. He's he's an evangelical, going to go with that faith only thing. And then, but he's also here. The article here is that um, Greg Laurie basically says that when what you saw last week was Bible prophecy being fulfilled right before your very eyes. Okay. And 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 he has this whole thing. He has a whole lesson on this. And. I cannot justify that in any form of scripture. No, no, there's nothing. There's that's a that is a certain way of interpreting some of the scriptures. I believe it's very faulty. We're going to talk about at least some of that in the sermon this morning in our assembly at 11 o'clock. If you want to come hear the lesson, or uh, it's we're at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 11 o'clock. I'm going to I'm going to talk about. The, the land of Israel and Bible prophecy, and we'll deal with some of the, a few of the issues that are raised by this. There's some other, and maybe next week I'm going to talk about uh, are the Jews God's chosen people today, and a few lessons like that. So there's about 50 different angles of this issue, facets. You can keep turning it around and looking at it. And there's one scripture I want to draw. A couple of them. <clears throat> there's one scripture I want to draw everyone's attention to in terms of this God couldn't set up this physical kingdom because the Jews stood in his way is Job 42 verses one and two. Job makes a comment after, after seeing God and speaking with God, Job says this, says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And that, that goes to, uh, I think an even more direct application of this thing to the, to this kingdom in Psalm 2, it's even quoted. This is even quoted in the New Testament in Acts 4, this passage is, in reference to the setting up of the church as God's kingdom. See, the New Testament pictures that the new the church is God's kingdom that he planned all along. It isn't a substitute, it isn't a it isn't a what they call it, a parenthesis in time. Right. It is the it is the thing that he was going to set up. Here's what Psalm 2 says. Why do the heathens or nations rage and the people plot a vain thing, a thing that is not is worthless? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed or his Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their core from us. He says the kings and the nations of the earth and the people of the earth, they don't like this idea that God rules over the nations. They want to cast God's rule aside. They want to thwart his kingdom. He, said, he goes on to say in verse 4, Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So God says, yes, the nations can, uh, the Romans and the Jews can plot against me. They can try to stop me from bringing the Messiah into the world. I'll laugh at them. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. Now, Peter applies that verse to the setting up of the church as a setting up of God's king in his kingdom. It is not a future event. It's something that's happened in the first century. Now, this is really a problem, I think, for a serious Bible student to say that uh, we're waiting for Christ to be set on a throne in Jerusalem when God says here in Psalm 2 and in Acts 4, but that's already happened. So we'll come to that in our, we're going to do two or three sermons on this probably in a very basic way. You can't, in the time I have for a sermon and the scope of it, we're not going to be able to go into huge detail. We can give you the parameters of a few of those things. So the whole concept of dispensational premillennialism is a relatively new one starting in the eight, late 1800s and the 1900s, made popular most especially by in the 60s by Hal Lindsey in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which has kind of captured all of much of Protestant denominationalism. It's, it's kind of captured that whole segment of the denominational world. And so every time you hear this issue talked about, you hear it only approached from the standpoint of a premillennial dispensationalist uh, window or, or viewpoint. And that has not been the majority view of this. In fact, I'm going to use some notes I was using from a professor of mine in college. Uh, he wrote some, he's written, a, he's visited, visited Israel like 50 times, and he was, he's uh, had quite, quite a bit of insight in that area. But he wrote a lot of stuff on this fulfillment of these prophecies and premillennialism. One of the ones I picked up the other day studying this, looking at some of the notes he had uh, recently was, you know, about Saddam Hussein being the Antichrist or being Nebuchadnezzar. He was refuting the claim that Saddam Hussein, that the premillennialists say that Saddam Hussein was the new Nebuchadnezzar. And they were sticking him up there as, see, gospel, it's Bible, Gary, it's Bible prophecy being fulfilled <laughs> before your very eyes. In the yeah. 80s, when, when Saddam Hussein was growing in power, see, this is the new Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon's going to rise. It predi it's predicting the end of the world and a great battle to come that's going to bring on Armageddon and all the end, the end of the world. And Christ's going to come and set up his kingdom. And that the evidence of this was Saddam Hussein. So how'd <laughs> that work out, not only for Saddam Hussein, how'd that work out for the premillennialists? I'll tell you what you won't hear. You won't hear them talking about Saddam Hussein today. Oh, no. Greg Lord can get in the pulpit and say you're seeing Bible prophecy before your eyes, but he never brings up the fact that these people are false prophets because they were saying Saddam Hussein was the fulfillment of all this stuff. Among among others, there was Bismarck and Adolf Hitler and Stalin. You know, that's just going back in recent history, much less going back in. <laughs> so don't be led astray by this. 
interpret the Bible books as they were intended to be understood, which when they're figurative, they're figurative, and when they're literal or historic, they are historic. That's the way they should be interpreted, and and that's uh, the be- that's the right way to do it. And when you do that, you will not come up with premillennial dispensationalism. Well, there's a, there's another psalm I think you might want to add to that. That's Psalm 118:22. I'm going to begin reading in 21. He says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus cites that passage relative to him. It's cited again, as you pointed out, in Acts chapter 4, relative again to Jesus. these are just so these prophecies were made about the time of Jesus Christ, not about 2023 or 1948 or whatever other date you say. Now, we, we can we're not going to get that, that general subject today. Uh, well, we can. But the, the, the only thing I say is that's a foundation that you kind of have to lay when you start looking at some of this other stuff. I want to go if I if if you if I can or if it'll work, I want to look at this from another Hang on one second here. I got all these things up on my screen. I need to get rid of them so that I can see. Oh, we got a phone call. I thought we might have. So we better take this phone call. Jerry's on the line. Okay. Uh, Jerry, how are you doing? Uh, Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jerry. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. I was wondering, I I have two questions. Uh, uh, Number one, you explained the uh, uh, stations of the cross uh, quite a while ago. And I just wonder, maybe Laura could chime in on this, uh, what a novena is. And I was always under the impression that a novena was the stations of the cross for a person that's still alive. And, uh, and as you explained quite a while ago, the, there, I think there are 14 of them, uh, and they're beautiful paintings, uh, of beginning with the agony in the garden and right up to his crucifixion. And so my question is about that, uh, what the novena is. And uh, I'd like to listen off air. That's okay, Mike. That's fine, Jerry. Well, I have to tell you that I do not know. I have not heard of this novena. I'm going to look it up here. Uh, um, I've not heard of this whole concept. I am a little familiar with with the um, and I'm trying to look it up just to see if I could find some general information, maybe jog my memory. But the only thing that's come up coming up is the site in Arkansas. So I don't think that's what you're <laughs> looking for, Jerry. But uh, I can say this about the stations of the cross. The ones that I'm familiar with are not just a Catholic ritual that you that, that revolves around paintings. But if you go to Jerusalem, you will go through you go down the. Uh, they will take you on a tour of the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrows. If your name is Dolores, your name means sorrowful or sorrow. So uh, anyway, the Via Dolorosa is the Way of Sorrows, and it supposedly traces the path from Herod's, I mean, from Pilate's fall to Golgotha, to the cross, that Christ would have walked in his last journey there through Jerusalem, 
carrying the cross or at least bearing part of the cross part way. So that's the via adult. And you go along here and every so often they stop you and they say they have a little plaque on a wall or a building or something. It's very narrow. It's a very narrow. I've walked this route before. It's a very narrow street with a lot of vendors and stuff. You'll see a little plaque on a wall and the guide will tell you this is where supposedly Jesus stumbled and dropped the cross and they got Simon to do it, carry it. And you go along a little further. And this is where he met the women, women who were crying out, you know, uh, and he told them weep for yourselves and so forth, not for me. And, and you go on and you go through these whole, I thought there were 12 stations of the cross. I could be mistaken about that in Jerusalem. So that's the one I'm familiar with. Now, the trouble with that is interesting to walk it because we got to walk through the old city of Jerusalem and see stuff everything everywhere i mean you can find university of alabama uh headgear in the shops along that way i saw as i walked by you know you know yarmulkes with with alabama headgear on them and you know every kind of weird thing you could think of is there plus all kind of food and and all kind of colorful displays but that's just because it's in this old city of jerusalem they know the tourists are going to be there but there's no Bible record of how we exactly know where it was. And if if and we didn't know if we were walking the same route, because that route wasn't established till centuries and centuries after Christ was there. Many changes had taken place in the city between the time of Christ and the time this route was established. But it does take you through the sequence of events from the time he left left Pilate's till you get to a supposed site of Golgotha, but that's the only station. And as you go along, if a, if you were a pilgrim, now I was not, I would not consider myself and the, my wife and the people that I was with, people from the church here and other people, I would not consider us pilgrims to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land, as they called it. We were there to learn about this area, to see for ourselves the sites and mentioned in the Bible and to observe and to learn. We were not there taking a religious pilgrimage of devotion, as it were, that some people do. And you could see these folks all along the way. They were bowing down and kissing certain paces on the pavement or on the stones. They were kneeling in worship before these little icons or before these plaques on the road there because they were in on a pilgrimage to this area. We were there to learn to study as Christians. And, and of course, there is a, a certain amount of worship that goes on because it can be a very moving thing. Other things are just tourist areas. and You have no idea if it really is right or not. And that didn't interest me too much if I thought it was just some tourist place, which a lot of places are. There's just cathedrals built over sites and you have no idea. Other places, it, or even if it was it the right site, you have no idea what it looked like when no, Jesus was no, there. It's not. So. And, and and the truth is, you know, it doesn't matter. He's not there, and he never told me to do anything along that line to worship a particular place or an object. And I'm careful about worshiping objects and places because of God's warning about these things about idolatry. So I'm going to have to do some looking up look uh, more research on this Nodina or Notina, either one, I can't find that phrase, and um, see if I can find out what that means as far as the station of the cross, Jerry, and I'll try to answer you later. Maybe somebody else knows. If you want to call in and let us know, the number is 
340-1597-72-340-1590. Jerry, I will tell you, you finally stumped us. <laughs> uh, completely stumped us. We, you've stumped us before a little, but today is you've completely stumped me. But in the event, isn't interesting, I can still talk for five or ten minutes on something when I'm stumped about it, Gary. Something you know it's nothing about. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gift. Now, I do know something about the Stations of the Cross, and it's, it was interesting to to see this and what it looks like in real life, walk through it, and um, you think a lot of thoughts and so forth. But in any event, that's what I can tell you about it, and so I don't really know how to answer your question better. Maybe I can find out for next week, and I'll try to let you know. I don't think it's in Arkansas, though. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that pretty affirmatively. I don't think what you're talking about is in Arkansas. All right. What I was trying to get at in all of this discussion about where I want to go, and we don't have our whole time, time left. Well, what 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 you managed to do is give me time to look up a lot of scripture I wanted to find. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah, that'll that'll work in that'll work out real well for this. Uh, what I was saying is, I was going to talk this morning in our eleven o'clock sermon about Israel and the promises to Abraham. Where I was going to begin for people who want to know what the Bible says, not not what Hal Lindsey says or what somebody from the Dallas Theological Seminary says about this or Greg Laurie. What does the Bible say about Israel's modern Israel in its relation to the Bible? So I would have to go back to the promises God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, beginning. And it says in verse one of Genesis 12, now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, where he was living at Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, which is where we would consider Babylon today. Babylon is in Iraq. You come from your, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So go to this land that I'm going to show you, and I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. And... Uh, you shall be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And in, and you, in Genesis, Genesis 17, it says, and you and your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. All right, so Jerry is back on the phone. Jerry, <laughs> what's on your mind? Uh, thank you, Mike. And uh, I just wanted to say that it's that the term is novena with the V, Victor. Uh, no okay. That was my fault. I did not hear you correctly. You, uh, you're just saying it's or anything like that. I, I just I was very interested in that, and uh, that's about it, Mike. Novena. Was okay, a, very good. Thank you for letting me know. Now I have heard of that. I, I just couldn't think of it at the time. Um, a novena. Uh, I'll just give you the official definition. I can give you my definition, but uh, a novena is uh, is an ancient system of the ancient tradition of devote, devotional praying in Christianity, consisting of private or public prayers repeated for nine successive days or weeks. The nine days between the Feast of the Ascension and the Pentecost when the disciples gathered in the upper room devoted themselves to prayers often considered the first novena. So it's popular around the world. So there's this, in the book of Acts, there's this, time between the ascension of Christ and the time that the Holy Spirit fell. I thought it was 10 days. They're saying, well, nine days in between those two things that they they were devoting themselves to prayer. And so then the Catholic Church made this into a tradition. This is how the traditions develop. 
made into a, to a tradition, which they kind of bind on people and tell people this is what you ought to be doing. You ought to be praying and doing this, this kind of thing. So novenas are most often prayers by members of the Roman Catholic Church, but also by Lutherans, Anglicans, and Ethan Orthodox Christians, and so forth. So they use prayer books for this. Now, the connection between this and then, of course, there is also all of this is devoted to Mary. I now remember this word. I just could not connect it up when you first called Jerry. But uh, the word novenas comes from the Latin word for nine. So I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I, I kind of I, something was ringing a bell, but it wasn't at all clear to me. And I re- realize now it's just because in my head I misspelled it. But it goes pretty far back in time. Now, binding this probably isn't. But in any event, in the Middle Ages, the Pope kind of recognized this in the year in the 1000s. It had become a means of praying and petitioning for personal favor through a particular saint, such as the Virgin Mary. And um, it wasn't until the 1500s till the church finally recognized this as a good thing through the popes and so it's it comes that it comes into play far after the new testament church and so in the roman catholic church there is uh, three or four categories of novenas uh mourning or before a burial nine days of praying in preparation for a church feast and intercession for particular requests. You would go and do these novenas if you, uh, now I don't know if it's related. I remember when I was, I was very sick as a newborn, wasn't supposed to survive. I was sick as a child, gravely ill a couple of times with heart, rheumatic fever and heart problems. And I, my Catholic grandmother, she was a very devout Catholic. I've talked about her before. I was told that she would go to mass every day and light candles and say prayers on my behalf. And I think there's even been a couple of masses said on my behalf and so forth because of her. Now, was that a form of a novena? I would say, even though I don't can't say that directly, it's possible that she was practicing what she would have understood as a novena as a European Catholic. Now, the, the thing I would like you to remember is there's nothing wrong with praying for nine successive days in a row or any number of days you want to pray in a row. I don't think you should pray to Mary. I don't think you should pray to saints. I don't think you can bind this number of days or any particular kind of prayer on anyone because the apostles never did. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but there's no no sanction from the New Testament for Gary and I as elders to say, we're going to do a novena. We want you to practice novenas. We want you, you know, there's just nothing there. We want you to do it this way and not this way, which is what the Catholic Church does. So, uh, I don't and I don't know. I still don't know and haven't been able to find it here that this is uh, connected up with the stations of the cross. Nothing, nothing in that I've read here. And I'm just kind of I will look at some more, Jerry, but nothing I'm reading here in this just glancing over a big, long historical article on this. Nothing indicates that it's connected with the stations of the cross. If that answers your question. So I don't know. I guess there's some other places in the world where you can do this stations of the cross. I think I've seen pictures inside of cathedrals where they have the windows 
each of the windows represents a station of the cross. So they would then in their liturgy, which is their order, their service, most large high high they're called high denominations like the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church, Anglican Church. Their their worship services are liturgies. They are spelled out for a year. The sermon topics, the scriptures are going to be read, the prayers are going to be read, all center around a church year calendar, which they've established without any biblical authority. And everything centers around this church year, all the worship and sermons do. And that's why it's called a liturgy liturgy or a set order. Uh, here, I had planned on speaking on something else this morning <laughs> in, in my way of doing it. But when all these events happened the last week and people began to ask me about them, I decided to change what I'm going to talk about and talk about some of these things going on in Israel right now with Hamas. That's kind of where we are. And that's so we are much more flexible in that regard because we don't believe that there is a set order every service based on a church or calendar year or a set of festivals. The Bible doesn't give us any annual festivals that Christians ought to be celebrating. And so we don't build our church worship services around an annual set of festivals especially because the Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. So we build them around what's happening now or other other systems of, of study. And I'm not saying we don't have series of lessons on stuff, but uh, it's much more, much more open because of that. Well, the good part, the, the good bad part about that, Gary, is, is that you would be locked into a set of su subjects or sermons and then as a preacher, the good part is you're locked into a set of subjects and sermons. You don't have to think about it as much, right? Because you're locked into what you're going to talk about. Anyhow, <laughs> there's always a good and bad in everything, isn't there? Right. You know where you are. So that's what I can say about Novena. You got anything? Up? Did you look up, Gary? You no, I didn't. I didn't. I was I was looking to the subject I think we'll, <clears throat> excuse me, get to. That was on? Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave that for a minute then, Jerry, and I appreciate you calling back for sure. And I'm sorry I can't give you a better answer. But going back to Genesis and this idea of the land, God made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And and we need to keep that that in mind, that that's what we're got. And then you find over in Genesis 12, verse 6 through 8, he says, I will give you Genesis 12, yeah, verse 8 in particular. I'll give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you see then that these three promises to Abraham, which is another whole subject, a land promise, a nation promise, and a seed promise. I think we see these fulfilled in the Bible in history, not in the future, but in history. Are there elements of these that might come into play at the end of time, possibly, but the Bible's clear that the land promise and the nation promise have already been fulfilled, and the seed promise, which is bringing Jesus Christ into the world and save men from sin, those have all been fulfilled in the past, and, and God's fulfilled all of his promises to Abraham, but that's another subject. So then you see that... Well, I want, I want to make note, Joshua 21, verse 43 as Joshua has finished taking the land and they are dividing it up, Joshua says, so the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. 
So don't let anybody tell you that he didn't fulfill the promise. Verse says, not a word failed of any of the good things that the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. pass. So, so yes, that was the verse I was going to re read, and, I, and that's important to remember because a lot of what you're hearing about Israel today in this land, they say that God didn't fulfill this promise to give Israel the land of Canaan. And that when the Messiah comes in the second time, that he's going to conquer all the land and fulfill this promise. The Bible says in the book of Joshua, and more than one time, by the way, that God gave them all the land that he promised to give them in Old Testament times. He fulfilled his promise. It says none of it failed. It all came to pass. It said twice in Joshua 23, 14 and 15. And in Joshua 21, 43 through 45, that statement is made twice in Joshua. And then you find in 1 Kings, because he spells out where this land is, from the river of Egypt to the great river, that Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates River, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute. And so Solomon certainly fulfilled the entire promise of the land in his lifetime. And so here's the other thing to remember about this, because people talk about, well, the, God still owes Israel this land. Number one, yes, God promised it to Abraham. Number two, God gave the land to Abraham's descendants exactly like he said he would. And the Bible said it's all been fulfilled. So don't let some TV preacher today tell you that there's still a promise of the land it hasn't been fulfilled. God's Messiah's got to come back and take this land. And that's what these wars are about over there. God preparing the way for the Messiah to come and take these lands. But not all, but, but receiving the land was unconditional. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants this land. That was unconditional, and they did receive it. But here's the problem. Retaining the land, holding on to the land was conditional. Yes, and that's okay. in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28, it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Among them was being taken out of the land and taken to a foreign country. You know, everybody ought to today read Deuteronomy 28 through 30, at least. You ought to read those. Those are some powerful Bible passages about obedience and disobedience and what God told he would do. In Deuteronomy 28, 45, it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord to keep his commandments. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Now think about that. I saw this yesterday. I don't <laughs> see it mentioned in any other books. The curses that they would receive for disobeying God in the first place, the curses would be upon the house of Israel forever. That they would become a byword among the byword among the nations. The nation, all you have to say, go back and read all this chapter. So the curses that are upon Israel for disobeying Him and being cast in the land last as long as the covenant to give you the land forever. Same exact word used. I'll give you the. I'll give. He says to Abraham, "I'll give your descendants the land forever." Apparently, forever doesn't mean forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It means for a long time because it does in this case. Well, in and the, the case, curses, what about those? Well, in the case of the the covenant to give the, for them to hold on to the land, it lasted only as long as they obeyed as God. They obeyed God, 
That's from the forever. Now that he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 30, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which, which you cross over the Jordan to possess. He tells them very specifically here that if they don't obey him, they will not continue to possess the land that they're going over to receive. So in other words, just like I said a moment ago, this promise was conditioned upon their obedience, a promise to hold on to the land, not to receive it. You go on, you read in Deuteronomy 30. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you and the blessing and the curse, which I have said before you. And you call them to mind among the nations, whither the Lord their God, our God drives you. And you return to the Lord and God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. That you and your children with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So Deuteronomy 30, God says clearly there that even after he takes them into captivity and removes them from the land, takes it away from them, gives it to other people, that if they obey, if a remnant, if that portion of those people in Babylon, if they returned to the Lord, he would bring them back from where they had been scattered. So this is a promise, Gary, Deuteronomy 30, that the denominational preachers, will, dispensational preachers will often bring up and say, see there, he said he was going to bring the Jews wherever they've been scattered. So since they were scattered after the crucifixion of Christ in 1948, he brought them all back into the land. That's not when this promise was fulfilled. This was a promise to bring the children of Israel back from captivity, from the Babylonian captivity not from the captivity they were taken into or the dispersion that took place at the destruction of Jerusalem. But he said, I'll bring you back. Well, now the question is, did God bring them back? Well, it was all, it was also, I think, made only to a certain number of them in Jeremiah 3, verses 6, well, actually verse 8, talking about the northern kingdom, which was the greatest part of Israel in many of the tribes, he says, then I saw that for all the causes for which the backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. See, and here's what happened. Here's the distinction I would say. I don't know if you want to talk about this, but is that sometimes when the Bible talks about Israel and Jude, it isn't talking about so much the individual, just talking about the tribal system, the tribal government, the tribal entity. Well, in that particular passage, he, he makes a comparison between Israel and Judah. Right. That's why I'm saying he's talking specifically. Yeah. And, and the truth is, we have evidence that members from every tribe came back into the land. You see, even the New Testament, Anna and Anna at the, at the temple when Jesus was born from the tribe of Asher. That's a northern tribe. There she is in Jerusalem. But the northern tribes were never tribes again. They were only individuals from that lineage that came back to the land. And yes, all Israel came back. All different tribes came back. But they never had a tribal identity. Apparently only one ever did again. That was the tribe of Judah, which is why they're called Jews. And the right. word Jews doesn't appear until very late in the Old Testament after the captivity when the only tribe that came back and had any kind of government at all was the tribe of Judah, 
And and we don't know that her we don't know that her people went away and returned. Some of those people stayed in the land, even though many were, of them were carried away. And they were never a tribe again. So he says he says even here in, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was there in captivity, and he he's going to go talk to the king about the people going back to the land. And he mentions this promise that you said that you would gather them together. And so Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah about a return to the land is about the God fulfilling this promise that he made to the tribe, to Israel, if they would repent when they were in captivity. So the whole return of, under Nehemiah was about the fulfillment of that promise. And then the second Chronicles chapter 36, at the very end of the Old Testament here, even though Second Chronicles is not the last book in the Old Testament. It's, it's the end of that historical book. It's the, it's the last book of history. Yeah. It's the very furthest point of history, Second Chronicles 36 is. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is what you're talking about. Yeah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so they made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, hang on here, i got to flip it. Um, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So the proclamation of Cyrus says that they went up from captivity to go build the house of God in Jerusalem, just like Moses said they would if they repented, like Jeremiah said. And then in Haggai, the whole book of Haggai is about rebuilding the temple. And he talks about that it under Darius, that God said, the time has come. My house should be built. And why are you living in nice houses here in the land? He pictures people back in the land from captivity, living in nice houses, and God's temple was in ruins. And Jehovah says to Haggai, you get out there and you tell these people they better build my house, right? Because time has come. So did God fulfill the promise to bring them back into the land? Yes, he fulfilled it. And so there's no problem. The land promise then was fulfilled in Bible times. It's not applicable today. The promise to receive the land, the promise that they would lose the land, the promise that they would be able to return to the land, all was fulfilled in Bible time. There's no future promise of a return of Israel to the land. That simply isn't in the Old Testament at all. But then there's the most, you know, the, the most terrible of the acts of disobedience was still yet to come. Yeah, and I'm going to come to that. You, and then, and, yeah, that, and you're talking about the destruction of the temple. And, and well, I'm talking about the rejection of Christ. I'm talking about the rejection of the Messiah. That was that their the, crime. Yes. Now, here's the question that comes up. Well, Mike, I hear all that, but you know, it does say that Israel was going to be given this land forever, okay, and it does in Genesis 17. The question is not whether the Bible says he was going to give them this land forever. The question is, what does the word forever or everlasting mean? And so it can mean time out of mind, past and future, eternity in a practical sense, always. It can mean something that lasts a long time of long duration. That's and, what the lexicon says. Well, and so what which does, is the correct definition here? And what does he mean by the land? Right, you have to discuss that. But I'm just yeah, talking what, about this idea of he's given all these things. Well, is this a physical land or is it a spiritual land? 
It well, be that's either, a, well, that's another. That's where we get to the New yeah, Testament. Yeah, yeah. About the Old Testament. So, and, they, and they're saying, well, God told the Jews back there He's going to give them this physical land forever. What now? The, you, you're bringing up another shepherd. What is the land? Well, I know that in one way of defining it, it was definitely the land that you could walk on that Abraham walked on. He was going to give them. Well, and so he the, he provided that to them. Right, he did. So the word can be used in in the true sense of the word, both of unlimited duration or something that is of a long cycle or an age. Now let me say, let me prove this to you. Here are some, and I want Christians to think about this before you go say, oh, God gave them the land forever. That means they're going to have it till the end of time. Well, that's another subject. Here are some things in the Old Testament that are said to be everlasting, using the same word that he used for the land being given to the Jews forever. Here are some other things that are said to be everlasting. How about the Old Covenant? He says, I'm giving you this this covenant forever. Okay. Now, the book of Hebrews is very plain. And even to the Jews, the Old Covenant of Moses only lasted until the Messiah came. It was age lasting. It lasted for the age or of long duration. Until, if you're contending today that the old covenant is still in effect, I don't think you're a faithful Christian at all. According to Galatians, you've given up grace if you say that. But in the Old Testament, the old covenant said to be everlasting. Incense was given as a perpetual or everlasting ordinance. So we should all be have burning incense in our temple, incense in the temple. So where should we be burning this incense in the temple? Now, you and I, Gary, you and I know the answer to that. You know why? <laughs> because the book of Hebrews says that the incense in the temple is the prayers of the saints. Well, you and I have a temple, a figurative temple, where we burn incense every day, right? But the he prayers of the saints. He even says in the Old Testament that that's going to come to Jeremiah. Isaiah says that. I'm just using the words of the New Testament says incense and, and the Sabbath observance. Exodus 31 says the Sabbath observance is a perpetual ordinance. Now, how many of the Christians listening to my voice that think Israel has a right to the land forever and we should go militarily support them or whatever? And I don't care if we do or not that. I, this is not against Israel. Our point is you can't go to the Bible and justify military intervention because God said he was going to give them the land forever. When the fact is you, these churches don't even keep the Sabbath observance. Circumcision was said to be an ordinance forever for Abraham's seed. Well, is literal circumcision? No. In fact, Galatians 5 says physical circumcision won't avail you anything. Now, you and I both know, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, that baptism stands in the place of circumcision in the new covenant. It's a circumcision made without hands. It's a figurative circumcision. So, yes, we have no problem taking all these things and bringing them over to the New Testament as figurative or symbolic things. Gary and I believe that, but that's not the issue. These people are saying these are literal things that are going to last forever. And then there was a curse on Israel for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, he says, when you when you disobey my law as a nation, I'm going to curse you forever. So the curse on Israel lasts as long as their possession of the land, as it were, which is forever. So you pick which one you want. You see, my point is the word forever does not mean until the end of time. It means until the end of the age or until the change comes. And, and I think that's pretty clear from looking at all that. That's the way it is. So the, and here's the other thing about it. 
if the Jews were going to possess the land forever, what about those 70 years in Babylonian captivity when they didn't possess the land? Is that part of the forever? What about those 2,000 years from the time they were driven out of the land in AD 70 until 1948 or whenever you say they came back? What about those 2,000? Did they possess the land forever during that period of time and they were driven out of it? And what about the word forever? Does it well, forever they've, been, they've been out of it for as long as the promise was made to Abraham. They've been out of it long, really long. And, and if forever means everlasting, never going to stop. What about when the earth is destroyed? Are they still going to possess the land when the earth is destroyed? Oh, well, no, you see, uh, that won't, wouldn't apply then. Well, look, if forever, if you're going to make forever mean forever in this case, then certainly would mean forever into eternity. You mean the Jews are going to possess the land of Palestine into eternity? How many Christians actually believe that's what it means? See, so so it's just a, a facile way of saying um, uh, well, you got to support Israel because, and not all that business of supporting Israel because they're God's chosen people, but supposed to possess the land forever was just something that came about because of Zionism in the late 1800s, and we can talk about that. But uh, that's the that's the gist of what the Bible says about this promise. Now, quickly, Gary, the last thing you brought up, Jesus said that the hope of the nation of Israel would become desolate. Yes. In Matthew 23, he told them, since you, I'm not going to read the whole verse. You looked late in the chapter, verse 29 on with Matthew 23, Jesus talking to the leaders of the Jews in that day, that since they had shed the blood of all the prophets, they were the same as their fathers gone before them. Well, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. You're going to kill yeah, the same. Yeah, verses 32 and 33. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? They were condemned by Christ. Right. And then he goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. generation. Verse 36, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. So there it is. I say you should not see me anymore until you see blessed name of the Lord. So in other words, this is just simply not uh, Jesus condemned them. They're now it's the promises have been fulfilled. The book of Malachi even ends with the idea. I'm done talking to you people until the Messiah comes in the book of Malachi. And so we don't have then this feeling that God's all hunking door with the Jews at the end of the New Testament. He, he says they're desolate. Their hope is gone. They've been driven from the land in AD 70. And so we ought to take that into consideration. One, any quick comment, then we got to close out, Gary. Well, Matthew 21, Jesus says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, that last few lines is a quote from the Psalms. He goes on to say, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And and what we know is from the New Testament, that was fulfilled in the church. And the then, right, God. exactly. Okay? So that's the point. Now, we have we've only touched the hem of the garment here. Don't take it. Oh, this is a comprehensive evaluation. I just want you to see that. Well, we're, we're completely out of time. Yeah, so let's. Uh, Come and be with us this morning at 11 o'clock. We do appreciate you being with us. Uh, we'll talk a little more about it Wednesday night. I'm, I'm talking about some of the things in Isaiah. Services, maybe again next week on the radio. Come and be with us then. 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. 
and then take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. If you'd like some notes on this, drop me an email or a text, and, and we'll be glad to get a hold of you and let you know about that. Thanks for listening. May God bless you. You've been listening to We're Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie, heard every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock on W.